This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss bundled payments, specifically bundled payment related to hip and knee surgeries. With me to discuss the topic is Senior Vice President of Business Development with the Signature Medical Group in Missouri, Jim Gira. Jim, welcome to the program. Thanks, David. Happy to be on and uh, glad to be talking to you about uh, about this topic with bundled payments. It's a perfect time because today is the day that CJR model goes live. Yes, thank you. Thank you for noting that. So on background, our bundled payment discussion is timely because, as Jim just noted, today CMS launches its Comprehensive Care for Joint Replacement Initiative, a five-year mandatory bundled payment demonstration for hips and knee surgeries in approximately 800 hospitals nationwide. The CJR demo follows CMS's Bundled Payments for Care Improvement demo. The agency launched a few years ago under four episode-based payment models for 48 episodes of care. Bundled payment or episode-based payment is, again, reimbursement based on a clinically defined medical episode of care. I say again because listeners may recall I discussed moreover the theory of bundled payment arrangements with Harold Miller this past September 23rd. To manage successfully a Medicare or any other payers bundled payment arrangement, that is earn a financial reward in addition to standard reimbursement requires several competencies. These include the ability to identify appropriate patients for the care episode, organize a care delivery team, achieve desired quality performance, manage risk, and appropriately profit or gain share. With me again to discuss how to manage or manage successfully bundled to payment arrangements is, again, Signature Medical Group's Jim Gira. So with that, Jim, on background, let me start with the, uh, the obvious question. Can you briefly describe uh, Signature's uh, bundled payment activities? Yep, no problem. Let me give you a, a little bit of background first on, on Signature. and Here we are in uh, essentially the journey we've taken to get to the point where we're at um, now and, and how we're engaged with bundled payment. Signature is a multi-specialty physician practice uh, in the St. Louis and Kansas City metro areas. We have 160 physicians uh, within the practice. Um, in 2011, our board realized that, you know, healthcare is going to go through a lot of changes with the ACA, and their feeling was, you know, we need to understand how to thrive, you know, survive and thrive in this changing environment. So uh, I came on early uh, in 2011. We had uh, some other new executives who came on and, and really looked into tackling what the opportunities or what the changes would be in, AC, in the ACA and how we would uh, would sort of tackle those those situations and apply them to opportunities that Signature would have. So we initially uh, began, our, began our engagement by applying for, you know, opportunities that were spawned from the ACA. Uh, you know, some of our early successes included co-authoring a, an approved application for advanced payment ACO, about 12,000 members in that ACO. Uh, we were awarded a $1.3 million grant to, uh, to implement a maternity care home model for our high-risk Medicaid bonds in the state of Missouri. It's uh, under the Strong Start for Mothers and Newborns, which is out of the Innovation Center. Um, 
some additional things. I served as a chairperson on several of the grant reviews for the Navigator grants and the Health Innovation Round 2 grants. And, and finally, Signature was an original uh, applicant and original awardee for as an awardee convener under the Bundle Payments for Care Improvement Initiative. We presently convene for 64, 60, or 56 orthopedic groups uh, in 60 cities, 26 states uh, ac- across the country, uh, performing about 50,000 episodes annually, uh, approximately 45,000 of those are total joints. Uh, the collaboration we're engaged in with, with all of these orthopedic practices has about just under 3,000 uh, orthopedic physicians, and, and we've it's allowed us to really collectively create a platform that helps us, you know, accelerate and disseminate advancements in care redesign, evidence-based clinical guidelines, and best practices. So, so our biggest engagement currently is within uh, with within BPCI. We've run some other bundles with uh, with employers within our region here in Missouri, and presently are working on a few other uh, commercial-based bundles uh, that are a little bit different than what you would look at as a bundle payment in BPCI or within the, the CJR model. Uh, the commercial payment bundles, a lot different than how you would actually look at a Medicare, especially a straight fee-for-service Medicare bundle. So we've uh, that, that's basically our engagement in bundle payments right now as an awardee convener. We share and bear risk with, uh, with each of the episode initiators, which uh, an episode initiator is essentially uh, an orthopedic group or a hospital that is the bundle payment recipient. And, uh, and so we, we share risk with each of those episode initiators, each of the orthopedic groups, and work with them to uh, implement a, a bundle payment program that effectively uh, provides better outcomes for patients, better health for the, their patients, and does that at a lower cost. So suffice to say, you enthusiastically embraced the bundled payment uh, opportunity. You said you're doing 45,000 and some hips and knees. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. We. Yeah. We. We. We have a, quite a bit of volume that goes through. Uh, that goes through uh, on a weekly and monthly basis. Okay. So let's talk about how do you do this, right? Because that's uh, where it matters. So I mentioned uh, several of the aspects of this. So let's start, and then uh, in, in that order, how do you identify appropriate uh, patients for the care episode? Again, in this case, total hip and knee replacement. And I ask particularly because, as you well know, regionally throughout the country, there's um, unwanted or unwarranted rather variation, which means that in some cases there's overuse for these procedures, and I would imagine that's something you want to avoid. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, um, the first, when, the way we look at it is, you know, just to step back and look at, okay, I have a bundle payment. We're going to be doing a bundle payment, especially if you're in a CGR market. So if you're a hospital or you're even a physician group that's working with a hospital in a CGR market or you're in BPCI, uh, you know, the first thing to step back is really to say, you know, what is going on and to review the data that you've received from Medicare and to assess your current situation because not every market is the same. So what happens in a market like in Tampa, Florida, or in 
Atlanta, Georgia is not necessarily the same that's going to happen in upstate New York and Portland, Oregon, and St. Louis, Missouri, and so forth. Uh, there's a lot of similarities, but the variations and the differences from market to market are not always the same. So I would say the first thing we really look at is, okay, where are you currently at? What's sort of an assessment of where you're at with uh, your current environment? What are the relationships with physicians, post-acute care vendors, what's the community, what's the culture of the community, and then what's your data telling you? Where, where are these high-cost areas or where are these uh, significant variations? Where do they lie within your data? And, and they can be really anywhere. You know, they can be in, in areas of post-acute care. They can be in areas of readmissions. So it's getting an understanding of what you presently have. I think the one thing to clarify is that in the bundle payments program with CJR and with uh, BPCI, identifying the patient is a key key aspect, but it's something that uh, is happening because of the actual DRG build. So there are some circumstances where, you know, as a hospital may have a, a patient that's put on the books for a surgery schedule, they might not even know that that patient's in their bundle until the surgery's already been performed. Uh, so from our perspective, we think that designing a program, you need to have an, uh, a comprehensive pre-op program that's addressing issues and, and potential problems uh, that a patient could encounter, you know, four to eight weeks prior to. You need that overall comprehensive care management system to move into the acute setting and address those areas and then finally move into the post-acute care. So you've linked pre-op, acute, and post-op all within the same type of management system. Okay, makes sense, and particularly on the post-acute because the data shows that's where the widest variation tends to be in uh, expenditure or reimbursement. So I think in sum, it suffice to say you do this with a great deal of awareness on all parties' uh, part. Let me ask you then next about uh, organizing your team. Again, you talk about the three stages, uh, pre-op, uh, so pre, peri, and post, right? Yeah. Um, prior, uh, the surgical procedure itself, and then the rehab. Could you explain how you ideally or how you would ideally organize the team to do this? Or who are the, piece, who are the participants in the team? Yeah, so I would I would say you know kind of here's what we look at is sort of uh, I guess we would say our our six pillars of sort of success or whatever you know what what we think um, is really key and when you're looking at you know overall what what drives success within a bundle payment I think frequently when we're working with other um, physician groups or hospitals or other providers, there's a tendency to, to jump on the post-acute care. And that's obviously the area that uh, that shines as far as, you know, wide variation, high cost, and the area that you need to tackle. Um, but it's not necessarily always tackled just in the post-acute care environment. So because that's where the issue and the, the area that you need to focus and target is not necessarily where you start with your efforts uh within care redesign. So we're, we're big proponents and supporters of care redesign. It, it sounds like a amorphous uh, terminology that nobody really maybe knows what that actually means, and, and, and it varies, obviously, from organization to organization, provider to provider. But you know, we look at it as, one, you need physician leadership and engagement. You know, physicians drive a majority of the care. They're at the 
you know, zenith of the clinical knowledge uh, about patient care, uh, their engagement is is vital in, in dealing with uh, what is the best way to set up a care plan and a care management system to address uh, address potential issues that are going to have adverse outcomes. Uh, they're the key part of that. So we we are real strong components of physician leadership and engagement. Our, our organization supports and believes in a, in a care management system uh, that is going to be effective in driving change. Uh, we believe that gets uh, delivered by a, by a qualified and certified case manager. Uh, so utilizing a nurse navigator, it's not necessarily the only resource you use because we integrate uh, social workers into, into our models because we believe in a, a biopsychosocial model of comprehensive care. So the psychosocial component can, yeah, that can be as much of a driving factor. I mean, the, the, the frequency of which we have a patient who overutilizes a particular high cost post acute care provider because that patient has a psychosocial factor, such as a uh, 73 year old woman who is, uh, you know, lives with her husband, and she's the caregiver for her 78-year-old husband. She's had a total hip or a total knee replacement. Now she's potentially going to skilled nursing or somewhere, you know, because she she can't actually take on the duties of being a caregiver at the same time that she uh, goes through her own healing process. So, you know, those factors, we have social isolation issues. These are things that, that impact uh, a lot of our patients and drive variation in, in cost or in, in outcomes. So, you know, we, we believe strongly in a case management system to manage those patients. Um, working on a post-acute care network, so you really want to find uh, who are the best providers. Uh, your data is very helpful with that, but mm-hmm. I would not say that your data is the only thing with that. So you're in addition to, um, you know, looking at your data and find, finding out, okay, which post-acute care providers uh, had the longer lengths to stay or our patients went to more frequently or were higher cost, you want to you look at that data, but then you also want to link that back to what's the quality of those actual facilities. Uh, it's not surprising that when we look at data, and we've got almost half a million you know, episodes over the last five years when we look at all of our data that we um, we have with all the groups we work with, so we have a, a robust database, and when we look at that database with hundreds of thousands of total hips and knees, you know, the higher the quality skilled nursing, the higher the quality home health provider, the better the outcomes and the lower the cost. And that, that seems to be a logical step, mm-hmm. but, uh, but the data actually supports that and, sure. and shows that if, you know, if you go to a higher quality place, you know, you're likely going to get better outcomes. And it's going to cost less. So, um, so getting a post-acute care network that that does that. But you know, you also want to get out there. You know, you, you got to go and, and, and get into the facilities. So you have to walk around the skilled nursing. You got to meet with the home health providers, um, and, and you need to do that regularly so that you know you don't just pick them on a pa- pick them on paper. Uh, you don't just write them down on a whiteboard. You have to have a personal relationship with them. Um, so you, you know, it's that's a preferred network that that's going to meet the needs of, of your program and, and adhere to the clinical uh, guidelines and care pathways that you established. Sure. Um, a couple other, a couple other things we look at is, you know, having, uh, you know, having that, that committee, um, you know, uh, if you have a bundle payment, 
depending on who's running uh, the bundle, whether it's a hospital or physician group, we think it's real key to have um, to have the, the key individuals involved, you know, your physician champion um, and other key stakeholders involved in the, in the committee environment so that you can really talk to a lot of these things related to uh, care redesign. Uh, you know, we, um, it, it's, it's been really fascinating and, and honestly wonderful to spend so much time with physicians that are highly engaged in redesigning the care of patients within a bundle payment because I get in these, I'm lucky enough to get in these great conversations where, you know, I'm at a meeting and I'm listening to the doctors talk about the effect of general, general anesthetic versus the spinal and, you know, the, the impact it can have on opioid dependence or not and, and what they need to do and how, which anesthesiologist they should be working with or not. Um, you know, talking about, you know, prehabilitation programs and, and what are the issues that are impacting a patient that could be addressed, you know, four to eight weeks prior to surgery. Um, a lot of those things where you really, you know, it's just a great environment to see these doctors get engaged and really, uh, you know, just use their, their clinical knowledge and intelligence to come up with, you know, wonderfully innovative ways to, uh, to, to address, you know, getting better outcomes for their patients and, and doing that over a, you know, a month, months and months uh, time span. Sure. So that committee, I think, is really key. Um, and, and last couple of things, you know, we we really think you have to have you know some defined protocols. You know, you need you know you need to to have uh, you know what's the care pathway. It's not um, there's there's a lot of avow and treat. There's a lot of open orders. Uh, there's a lot of uh, orders and order sets that have been in place for, for years and years that have not been necessarily changed. You know, we, uh, we see that it's not uncommon to find a, a doctor um, as he is reading the newest literature and he is on, you know, he's making changes to how he practices, um, but, but that information has not been necessarily disseminated to the skilled nursing, the home health, or even the hospital. So they're not aware of the most recent literature, the most recent changes that are happening. So. Um, having those defined pathways and those defined protocols and making sure that everyone within the continuum of care uh, understands what those are and what, what the goal is with those pathways um, and, and what everybody's collectively as a team, what you're trying to strive for. Okay, okay. Let me, let me ask you about quality measures. In the CJR, there, there's an, there are two, but there's a, there's a potential third. But those aside, are, are, are you finding any specific quality measures that are more predictive relative to uh, achieving a desired or most optimal outcome? Um, you know, right now what, what we do, um, I would say it's still too early to necessarily tell. Um, I think that, you know, there's certainly relationship to orthopedic care, uh, you know, orthopedists, uh, will look towards their uh, their academy and, and AOS is very involved in in defining what are the appropriate quality measures. How should those be collected? How should they be recorded? It's it's a very key um, key issue. I know that you know the signature we participate in an association called the Orthopedic Forum and the Ortho Forum. It's it's the largest association that, that has only large orthopedic groups, um, about 90-plus groups or so, 
um, great organization, and, and they're actively involved in setting a, a standard for outcomes. You know, what are what should be the patient-reported outcomes? Uh, do we use Who's Coos Junior? Do we use VR12 Promise? What do we use? How do we collect it? How do we report it? Um, there's a lot of interest, obviously, from OrthoForum and from the academy to make sure, you know, that there's a standard that's set. In in BTCI, um, the the difference between BTCI and CJR is in BTCI you're allowed to essentially establish your own quality performance mm-hmm. targets, mm-hmm. and and the key yeah, and then the key part of the quality performance targets are if you create savings, whether it's CJR or BTCI, unless you provide unless you hit the quality targets you're not going to see any of that savings. So, and it's, it, you know, we think it's an appropriate way to to basically distribute savings. You know, you should perform at or above what you have traditionally from a quality standpoint in order to show that, hey, we're creating the savings not by eliminating, reducing, or denying care. We're actually doing it by, um, you know, by improving care, and we can show you the outcomes get better. So we uh, inside of BPCI, we have about um, upwards of 50 different quality metrics that any one of the groups we work with um, can select. Um, most groups are selecting up to six quality metrics that they uh, they collect. They can be things such as uh, you know patient um, patient satisfaction. They can be some of the you know they, some of the groups are using Berg or Dash, which are you know functional outcome right. uh, tests. Uh, you know, we do have Who's Kiss Junior and we have, you know, VR12 that some groups may use. Um, but a lot of things like, you know, readmission rates, infection, length of stay. Uh, we collect eight, uh, eight quality metrics for all of our groups, uh, regardless of whether or not they're tracking it and we track them. And they are, you know, things such as the infection rate, wound to hiss, um, Pulmonary pulmonary embolism, you know, readmit 30, 60, and 90 days. You know, a lot of these things to just make sure that okay, you know, where are we where are we at right now? And, and the great thing to report is, since we started BPCI, every group that's participated, those eight quality metrics collectively and as a group, we've improved upon. So we continue to see improvements in uh, in the areas that we're tackling, and we've got. Some groups that have reduced their readmission by uh, by forty to sixty percent. I mean, it's been it's been incredible, and uh, and that's that's been a lot of that's been driven not just because of a focus on post acute care, but also a, a really strong focus preoperatively, mm-hmm. so that we've identified those areas in which a patient might be at risk for readmission before that patient's even had surgery and. And we found that, you know, about um, upwards of 40% of our readmissions can be addressed preoperatively so that we can avoid them. So, and we're seeing that, which is great. You know, we, we link a quality measure with that, you know, 30-day readmit. The group then really gets aggressive on, on identifying those risk factors uh, prior to the surgery and then putting in interventions that are going to address those potential risks uh, with a patient prior to them even actually going into the surgery. Yes, exactly. An ounce of prevention, right, yes. We have time for just, you mentioned it, and we have time for just this last question, and that is your mention of profit sharing, uh, gain sharing. You know, this, um, obviously, this comes down to who gets a bonus, who doesn't, and how that all gets distributed. So what's been your experience in implementing um, that aspect of this program? 
so far, it's been great. Um, I would say that you know, what we have, uh, you know, all of our bundles currently in BPCI uh, are, are physician-led, so they're all physician groups. We have one hospital, but they're all physician groups, most primarily physician groups. Uh, so there's some uniqueness uh, to how those those programs get designed because the physician group is essentially managing and controlling the the, uh, the overall bundle. Um, however, we do have uh, just under 60 hospital game shares set up between the physician group and the hospital. So uh, we've seen uh, we've seen the hospitals uh, uh, while a little slow to adapt, and a lot of that's because of the legalities and getting comfortable with the the waivers that are associated with BPCI. But as soon as they got comfortable with that, you know, we've seen a lot of hospitals, uh, you know, sign on and get engaged around the get engaged with the gain shares. Um, our gain share, we we strongly advocate and believe in a gain share that creates incentive and creates it for a long period of time. So our gain shares, uh, you know, basically are one year gain shares that renew every year. Uh, but the key thing is we set a baseline and we hold that baseline through the term of the entire program. So. BPCI being a three years or longer program since uh, Medicare is not uh, defined an end date right, yet. Right. Uh, but we, you know, we set um, we set that baseline, you know, and it's it's determined jointly between the physician group and the hospital. But we set a baseline. We hold that baseline through uh, through the length of the program, so it could be upwards of three years or more. And uh, and then you know the physicians are you know they have a cap on it that. that cap is defined by Medicare, and it's the same cap that's in BPCI is the same one in CJR, which is 50% of their fee-for-service. Um, so, you know, what we see is that the physicians have a financial incentive uh, to get engaged in uh, reducing the cost and getting better quality outcomes, because those gain shares also have quality attached to them, so if they reduce the cost but don't hit the quality, they don't get a check. Right. Right. Um, so we've seen that engagement, but but the the interesting thing is the savings we've seen generated is we've, we're seeing that accrue over to the hospital more so than what they've actually paid out in the gain share. So we have uh, we have groups where the the physicians have reduced their cost in the, in the acute setting, you know, a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars per case, and you know they're at a Capped amount of about you know set anywhere between seven to eight hundred dollars per case, mm-hmm. and so uh, so we we see huge savings. And we had a physician who uh, a couple that you know they went into their preference card and 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 got together with the doctors and said, okay, you know what's everybody using? What are you not using? How many packs do you have here? And you know after all was said and done, a, a few hours of work, they were able to figure out you know. Hey, we can uh, we can probably trim off about anywhere between five hundred to a thousand dollars for each one of us um, by readjusting our preference cards, and, and they did that, and that was before even tackling the, the, the big uh, elephant in the room, which is the, the implant vendors. But um, so we we've seen those be successful, and um, that type of engagement, you know, is really key. I mean, we work with physicians all the time. And I mean, these guys, you know, working, you know, 10, 12 hours a day. It's a highly stressful job um, with, that, that takes a lot of energy and time. And, you know, they, they're taken away from their families frequently. And if you're asking them to come to one more meeting and put, you know, just, just a couple hours more time and, and such, 
you know, you know, our feeling has always been, you know, you got to give them a reward for that because, you know, they want to do it. But, you know, if I have a choice between, you know, spending, you know, three or four hours on a Monday night um, at a joint committee meeting or seeing my kids, uh, again, I, I'm going to go pick seeing my kids uh, unless, you know, there's some additional incentives. Right. Okay, Jim. Uh... But, but we see, I was going to say, we see a ton of game shows at this, at this moment in time. And it, They've been really uh, the groups that are in the hospitals that are engaging them and actively moving along with them. It's been really successful. Thank you, Jim. We're sadly at our time boundary, so genuinely appreciate this. As I oftentimes say, whirlwind discussion on a multifaceted, very complicated subject. So genuinely, are appreciative. Thank you very much. No, thank you. I was it was a real honor to be on, and it was a real pleasure to get a chance to speak with you. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archived program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.